This week on Diagnosing Dilemmas, we're going to be talking about integrity in scientific research. What does it mean for scientists to be honest in their research practices? Why is it important? What does it mean for the public when science is dishonest? And where are we going from here? I'm your host, Anushka, and on this week's episode, I am very excited to be joined by Dr. Paul Fisher. Dr. Fisher is a professor of neurology and pediatrics here at Stanford, and he's also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Pediatrics and serves on the Committee for Publication Ethics. But apart from all of his accomplishments, Dr. Fisher is a wonderful mentor to me and so many of my peers here at Stanford, and he's so dedicated to carving out and spending time talking to students. Dr. Fisher, thank you for joining us. And thank you for having me, Anushka. <laughs> um, so just to start off, I wanted to talk a little about your background. You have a very interesting background. You are a physician by training, and you work as a child neurologist here at Stanford with a particular interest in brain tumors, and you're also involved in the academic space as editor-in-chief of the Journal of Pediatrics. Tell us a little bit more about how you became interested in these areas, specifically the publication side of medicine. I can start with a brief shout-out, being that I'm here at Stanford, and so being a, a poster child of human biology, I was sort of born into the idea of interdisciplinary education, interdisciplinary practice. And so that's why I wear a lot of different hats because I think you can, with quality, do a lot of things. So as I went through medicine and got my degree, I decided along the way to get a master's in epidemiology because I wanted to go into clinical trials in pediatric oncology, neuro-oncology, take care of kids with brain tumors. I did all that between UCSF and Hopkins and then came back here in the late 90s. And then I think where I got really fascinated by the poll publication thing, first off, as, as an investigator, you publish. But where I got even more interested is as I was seeing my colleagues and friends putting together studies because pediatric oncology is very focused on trials, seeing things that were clearly not their fault per se directly, but they were either mistaken and things that were either doomed to never be a good study, doomed to never to accrue, or had methodological flaws, started realizing that. And then likewise, at the same time, started seeing papers. So when you're in academics, you peer review papers and you, before they get published and starting to see even the people I know where they had either knowingly or unknowingly walked into areas where the paper was invalid or fraught with mistakes or errors, or sometimes we'll say a fatal methodological flaw that you realize, wow, or even sometimes ethical problems. And so it started opening my eyes. And then as I became a peer reviewer, I got more and more involved in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and were you, what was your research experience like as, as, you know, a student and, and a physician and how did that inform the way that you viewed publication ethics? It's a great question. My research experience as a student, so back in the day, not as many people did honors, but I worked with someone, a guy, Robert Berkowitz, in child psychiatry. He was interested in how kids eat and how it might influence their weight down the road. But what he instilled in me was this real intentionality in methods mm -hmm. about is a design valid, is it reliable? And I did a small project there doing a validity of this thing called a Vitalog at the time it was basically way before iPhones and things like that. That was trying to sort of measure movements of a baby or a ch young child. And so I started getting an appreciation for not just the research, but actually the validity, the robust nature of it and its replicability. 
and not the whole, all the methods. So I, and I got interested in that. I like math too, so that kind of appealed to me. Do you think that as a student here at Stanford, you learned a lot about methods or enough to equip you to be a proper researcher? How, what, what, what are your thoughts on the way that students are educated about research methodology? I think as an undergrad, it got me on my way. I think my medical education, which was up at UCSF, which was fantastic, um, I don't think that helped me there in terms of methods. I don't think, I think in medical education across the board, we do a, not a great job in terms of instilling either understanding of research methods as well as ethics. And I don't mean ethics on a case by case of needs a liver transplant or why do you remove or not remove support in brain death or things like that. I'm talking about ethics across the medical industry. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's addressed well at all in medical school. Uh, the ethics of publication, the ethics of research design, the ethics of allocation of, of resources, all of that is not handled very well at all. And I think that's a problem. So I think, you know, I think that was partly why when I went into, I wanted to do neuro-oncology, oncology and brain tumors, and I told people that I was at Hopkins that I wanted to go and get tools. Some of them said, well, you could just go ahead and start doing it. I said, no, 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 I, I think I need to get tools. I want to go ahead and get a master's in epidemiology. So I advance the skills. So I actually know what I'm really doing. And, and that really put a backbone in me of very intense research methods and intentionality and design. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it would be great if you could talk more, a little bit more about the, how you got into pediatric oncology and neurology as an interest in, in, in sort of that field, because it, it seems like the gravity of research ethics, it kind of gets heightened when you're working with kids, it feels like. And I'm not sure how much of your background in pediatrics influenced your interest in research ethics, but walk us through kind of your, you know, how you, how you got into pediatrics and oncology and neurology. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Um, I loved neuroscience and I went into medical school thinking I was going to be a child psychiatrist because I liked everything I'd learned about it. the brain as an undergrad. And that didn't really appeal to me. And then I ultimately decided going into child neurology because I went down more and more neurology, I got a little frustrated by sometimes the narrowness of it. And I realized I was always, always a pediatrician as well. And then I mentioned already I took an epidemiology degree and then I decided like, no, if I really want to do brain tumors, I mean, a few things that cross in multiple areas, kind of like the home bio approach. And by doing that, I was able to keep a lot of, because in oncology, there's a lot of general pediatrics in everything from infections to transfusions and following blood counts and, and medical support and things like that for the kids. So it was an, a way to pull them all together. And I, you know, I, I struggled in medical school. I knew I wanted to be in pediatric care but I didn't know exactly the specialty, but it sort of took me back to those roots. And, and then the other part of it too, I didn't really know exactly where I knew I wanted to be in the academic side of it. And, and that's where I started, started getting exposed to journals. I remember first reading things like the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, and getting a subscription. And then in my fourth year when I was in neonatology, it was a really intense, great neonatology group at UCSF. And one of them said, like, if you're going to be a real pediatrician in academics, you need to read the Journal of Pediatrics. So I subscribed to it and started reading it. And I have these really good memories that I've shared with people in the journal. I remember like taking like 
paper copies to the, <laughs> the New Jersey shore and read them on the deck in like in the July sunshine. Yeah. It feels like a really full circle moment because you read the Journal of Pediatrics as a medical student and now you're the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Pediatrics. What is that? Was that like a, did you envision yourself being? No. <laughs> um, it's it's total serendipity and it's trippy. Actually, you know, it's funny last night because um, we don't do that many paper copies, but I, I pulled a paper copy or it came in the mail yesterday. I had it on my kitchen table and I was thinking, how did this happen? How did I get this way? Um, there's a little bit of serendipity. I mean, I, I started out with the journal just reading it and then like other people, because I did various things in academics, I got asked to do some peer reviews of papers. And then the, the editor who preceded me, Bill Balistrieri, who I adore, um, I think Bill identified me as someone who might be good on the editorial board, particularly after I wrote this one review once of a paper. You know, when you write a review, there's the comments to the editor, and then there's the comments to the author. So I made comments to the authors where they'd pull two or three clinical trials together and paste it together in a, this hodgepodge way that is, you just can't do. And I wrote in the box of the editor, which I know got Bill's attention, because I wrote, imagine that you call your spouse and you have dinner company coming over and you don't know what to do. You take some patients from one study and you mix them <laughs> with another clinical trial from another, bake them on your statistical crust for 15 minutes, mmm, delicious. And I remember, I knew that caught Bill's attention because then the very first editorial board meeting I went to, he says, I'm going to give out a, a, the ROI, ROI, Reviewer of the Year Award. And I thought, oh, wow, what are these old coots at this table? Is he going to get this Reviewer of the Year Award? How cool. And then he starts reading what I wrote to him, to everyone. I go, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> but I realized that's how I had been asked to be there because I was very, you know, I, I didn't, I was very polite and appropriate to the authors. But I was very clear, I wanted to make clear to the editor that this paper was fraught with really bad methodology that it shouldn't be published because it's just, it's invalid and the conclusions were invalid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, obviously the theme of this episode is publication ethics and looking into why it's important that the research space ha has a level of integrity. Um, to people who may not know a lot about this area, can you just kind of walk walk us through why is it important that we have standards in research? And what does that mean to you as both a physician and someone in the publication space? Like, what's the, what's the big picture here? Yeah, so standards in research are really important because the whole point of science, whether it's social science or whether it's biomedical science or basic, other basic science, the the purpose is always to seek truth, to find truth or approximate truth. And then what publications have done for hundreds of years is they basically archive the record of that. Mm -hmm. It's a record so that people can look back and say, what do we know or not know? And how do we improve upon that? Where it gets messy is two things. Either one, if people don't understand the methods, then the record is not going to reflect truth. And that's probably we hope inadvertent, but it could be intentional. But then we get into also the problems of things being published. And then if people do actually falsify things, plagiarize things, fabricate things, if they do those types of things, then the problem is, then it gets in the scientific record. It creates problems in the science 
and it even backfires with the general public where it leads to a lot of distrust in science. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned plagiarism and recycling of texts a little bit. You have a particular interest in plagiarism and text recycling. Tell us more about how these issues, what, what interests you about these issues and how they kind of come into your day-to-day -day as um, editor-in-chief. So I first got interested in plagiarism, particularly when I started reviewing it and was on the editorial board and starting to edit an associate editor for the Journal of Pediatrics. Um, there are all sorts of methods. And the thing that struck me the most, this was around the time I was director in human bio too, there seemed to be this weird contrast in like, what happened if a student plagiarized versus some mm -hmm. author, and I would say some old white dude. <laughs> and, and it really bothered me. So I gave a presentation to our editorial board at one of the meetings. It was one of these dual screen, dual slide, compare and contrast. I said like, I, you know, I've gone to previously, now the Office of Community Standards, but the Honor Code Violation Board at the time, and I'd seen, you know, and I tried to work with students, but there were people who either had done things intentionally or whatever. And it impressed upon me that we were, we seemed to be more strict with students, undergrads, than we were with like authors in a scientific mm -hmm. journal. There was too much of this, oh, give them another chance. Oh, it was probably unintentional. And there are some things that are unintentional, but that's what really kind of got my goat. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you, you're telling me like, you know, if, if a student after two or three instances of plagiarism, they're, they're tossed, they're expelled, yet you want to give someone, a, a scientist, a second or third chance, yeah. that's sort of undoing what we're trying to teach people early on. So I don't think it, it really, I don't think it's being honest to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And obviously, as you, you know, you work with students, and so you're probably seeing both sides of it. Why do you think that is? Why is it that the standard for researchers seems to be a little bit more relaxed. I think, I think they're part of the, the same community that I travel through where I said before, you know, I'd go to UCSF again. It's a whatever five-star medical school. It was great. Um, had a great time, learned a lot, but I think the industry of training health professionals, not just medicine, but other health professionals, maybe not necessarily MPH or epidemiology where they do get more grounding and statistics in design, but, but a lot of people trained either in biomedical research or uh, clinical investigation, translational research, they really don't have much training in either methodology. And I don't mean methodology, like how do you do a gel, but like, how do you interpret the study? What error flags mean? How do you present your data? How do you communicate your data? Or how do you analyze your data? You know, even back, I think back to when I was here in Humbio, everyone all the undergrads in Humbio have a stats requirement, which we totally blew up when I was director because I, I would get, I would freak out when someone would say, well, I didn't really understand how to do the stats, but I taught myself R and I just <laughs> plugged it in and see what I got. And like, you know, there's the old garbage in garbage out that might've worked, but maybe it didn't, you know, you use the wrong kind of tests on the wrong kind of data. You could, it could really backfire. And so, you know, someone said I did a linear regression of like pink, red, and blue, like those, those are categorical. We can't do that. And so I, I just really started seeing, I guess, having been in academics a long time and loving it, I saw where we had this sort of like downfall of we're not, we're not honoring the methods 
and I don't, again, not, I'm not talking PCR and how to do CRISPR. I'm talking the, the methods of design. We're really not honoring that and, and training people in that well enough. And it hurts them both as researchers, reviewers, and I think sometimes also for editors. And it seems like the scientific community, as you progress through, there's this aspect of peer reviewing and this whole thing about what happens when you encounter an author that you might know personally. Because a lot, I mean, the scientific community, although it's large and a lot of niche areas, it's very small and, and that people know each other. Um, do you think that that influences people's perception of like trust and giving people the benefit of the doubt at all? So I, you know, peer review is a funny thing. I think peer review works by and large. Okay. The problem is, you know, there, there are a couple things that come up. There are some people who will peer review a paper that may not be the best reviewers for it. And because it's sort of an unrewarded, underrecognized thing, sometimes a journal will go with the first people they get. Mm -hmm. And that may or, those may or may not be the best expert or qualified people. That's one thing. Uh, second is we don't train people how to do peer reviews. I try, but we don't do that on a widespread basis. And then you really understand peer review. I mean, I always joke to people, if you want to go like to one of the nerdiest meetings on the planet, every four years in Chicago, there's the peer review Congress. It's probably as probably only less nerdy than maybe like a Star Trek convention or something. <laughs> it's incredibly nerdy and it's all about peer review. And, and people have come up with things like, you know, would open peer review, solve this, like, you know, publishing the reviews with the names of who reviewed. That might help here and there. But I think the fundamental thing is training people in the methods and the ethics so they know how to do peer review. That's, that's the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of to transition a little bit to the Journal of Pediatrics specifically, I mean, tell us a little bit more about what the journal, what types of pieces does the journal publish? Yeah, um, so what kind of journal is it? So, so J, the Journal of Pediatrics, JPEDS as it's known affectionately. So JPEDS has been around the longest as a, as a pediatrics journal. Uh, so we're like 91, 92 years. And so we're basically academic pediatrics, general mm -hmm. pediatrics, um, and then a lot of subspecialty. It's not just general, so we'll do things, but they tend to be things that come up in academic medical centers. There are some other journals that focus more on community pediatrics and, and daily practice, but we focus a lot on the research issues that come up in an academic medical center. And we get a lot of papers. We get about 3,000, 3,500 submissions a year. And, and we only publish about 15% of them. So there, there's a lot we get, um, but we get everything from, it can be something in nephrology. It can be something in neonatology about what's the best way to protect babies' brains when there's been a, an injury at birth. Increasingly, what we've been trying to focus is expanding our scope to reflect the community of academic pediatrics today. So we've started branching into things like palliative care, health policy, Global Health, we've gotten some really cool global health pieces this uh, last year with an academic bent to them. And they've been really, really, really fascinating to see. Those are things that we're going to keep growing. Mm -hmm. And um, what about sort of, I think you, you might have mentioned this a little bit, but what about population-based studies? Like how much of, you know, randomized controlled trials, cohort studies do you yeah, see? Yeah, we get a bunch. So we get everything from case control to cohort studies to uh, clinical trials. Some clinical trials also go, a lot of clinical trials go to, there's what's called JAMA Pediatrics, mm -hmm. which will publish often some of the bigger ones nationally. Um, but we get, our, we get our share of trials as well. But there's ethical problems that come up in all of them. Mm -hmm. 
trials, I, I hope, and I think we're getting better because they have to be registered. And with trial registration, we've been also been treating our reviewers and our editorial board, how really to leverage trial registration to really double and triple down on the integrity of both the methods and the ethics of the study. For instance, you know, if we get a clinical trial and we realize, okay, the trial was done over the last eight years, but it was just registered three weeks ago, that's a no-go right away. Right. That's gonna, that paper's gonna be tossed. Or if they've changed their primary objective along the way and the study wasn't designed that way, that's another one that's not, that's gonna be rejected because it's the study wasn't designed to explore that. And, and you know, those kinds of things. We're open to things. So we, we want people, if they're open in, in why they're changing things or why they've done things, we'll, we'll work with them. But they have to go by rules of good clinical design. Yeah. And that's what clinical trials that clinicaltrials.gov was designed for two things. One is to try to ensure the integrity that studies are done prospectively for trials in a good way, good methods, and also for those that are negative where the findings didn't show what they thought, that they actually get there's some deposit a depository of them somewhere where people can find even the negative studies, not just the positive studies, because all too often negative studies don't get published as much as we would like. Mm -hmm. And that kind of gets into, obviously, clinicaltrials.gov is important for families who are looking at the options of clinical trials and the results from clinical trials. You interact with families on a, on a regular basis through your patients and, and understanding, and you kind of have an insider look at the way that science and the public interact. So tell us more about how you think the relationship between the public and scientific literature has changed over time and the current standing of, of way, the way that's, ways that families that you interact with look at scientific publications. So all families are calling the web more than ever. You know, 20 years ago, it was the, the best and the brightest families who had access to the internet right. and they would call them the net and come in with 18 papers or something. But now everyone's reading things. Yeah. And a lot of people, when their child is ill, particularly in oncology, they'll form a team of three, four, five people, and they'll start looking at things. They'll look at either clinicaltrials.gov. Sometimes they'll use Google, and Dr. Google can be good and bad. And so I always have an open conversation about where they're getting their information. But I think toward your, your question about how has it affected it, I think the problem is because there's been this push in for everything to be so immediate in the media and the immediate in science and immediate in publications, because of that, we're seeing more mistakes or quote mistakes get through. And with that, that those, depending on how high profile, those can be dings in science. So it can create some distrust in science. So you, know, you wanna say that you know, the biggest distrust in science and pediatrics, it's obviously gonna be things like vaccine hesitancy, um, all sorts of alternative thinking about how children wind up with intellectual disability and autism spectrum, all sorts of you know, different thoughts about how these things arise. I mean, we certainly wanna be open scientifically to how things occur, but when it gets generated out there, when the data are being more crowdsourced than they are being mm -hmm. uh, worked out scientifically, that's a little bit dangerous. Mm -hmm. And publications often, the scientific community is a very dynamic one in terms of things getting retracted or if things are incorrect, you know, having that be dynamic. Do you think that the general public is aware of the sort of dynamic nature of the scientific community? Or is there like, like how much of that is kind of popularized and made aware? I'll tell you a couple of things that the public 
knows or should know or doesn't know. So I think sometimes, you know, some families or patients will want to hang everything on one paper, um, one study. Probably shouldn't do that. So that, you know, I always say to people, there's a difference between medicine and law, law where people talk about, oh, there was a landmark case, a landmark ruling on either some single case, but medicine's not like that. Medicine's based on repetition of science. Science is based on repetition to find truth. And so people don't understand that. I think with retractions, where it gets tricky is, I don't think people understand that every now and then things are gonna be debunked and that's okay. Or every now and then there's going to be a bad paper, a bad apple, but that doesn't pollute the whole field. Mm -hmm. It's it's such a minuscule part. Don't get me wrong, there's, there's plagiarism, there's misconduct, there's lapses of ethics. They're out there, you know, and estimates have been anything from less than 1% to two, two and a half percent. But that's still 98, 99% of everything out there is pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't think the field, I, I'm, I'm more optimistic. I don't think the field is a hot mess. I think the problem is people want to take those things and then take them out of context. I think what we need to do as scientists and publishers and editors is go ahead and just deal with those as they come up and that preserves the integrity of science. Mm -hmm. And I think another important aspect that you mentioned is a lot of, there needs to be sort of an oversight and people who are keeping scientific journals accountable. And you are involved in the Committee on Publication Ethics, COPE. Tell us more about what the function of that body is and how it's involved in these ethical issues. So COPE is based out of the UK. It's an international overseer. It's neutral, it's like an ombudsperson. I always say to people about it, you know, I, I was elected on my second go round, the first time I lost. So <laughs> a story for anyone is, because at the time, Bill Balistrieri, the editor of the Journal of Pediatrics then, encouraged me, he said, you are gonna run a second time. It's like, yeah, I guess I'll swallow my pride, but if I lose a second time, I'm gonna feel really crappy. But I did, I'm glad I did. So COPE, we're not a police person. We're not a, we're not a judge, we're not a, a tribunal. We try to facilitate solutions in ethical problems in ethical research uh, at the publication level between publishers, editors, uh, journals, authors, and sometimes institutions. The biggest problem that we're seeing these days is the largesse or the you know, the bulkiness of institutions, institutions, whether it's a Stanford, a Yale, or I don't know, pick a smaller you know, University of Illinois, all of them are big universities with a lot of bureaucracy and administration. They have big budgets and they're, while they're nonprofit in nature, they're still organizations and they want to protect the whole organization. And that's understandable but sometimes they're too slow to respond. And that's one of the things that's probably plaguing right now. Publishing, probably the two biggest problems in publishing, I would say, I don't think it's necessarily just the authors per se. I think it's the institutions and the publishers. The publishers want more and more articles, more and more journals, mm -hmm. and the institutions want more and more science and more and more papers and more and more glitziness. And that trickles down to pressure on the authors and the researchers. And it trickles down to a lot of work for the peer reviewers and the editors. And they're, they're a little bit caught in between. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so kind of you're saying that 
COPE is mediating that relationship between institutions, publishers, authors, researchers. Right. So even this morning went through a couple of things where there's, you know, we'll have cases that come up. And so we have something called a very British term, facilitation and integrity committee, the FNI. And so we try to mediate these solutions that somebody will re reach out to a couple of journals this week of uh, one suggesting strongly they publish something called an expression of concern, mm -hmm. an EOC, which is on its way toward a retraction, or on another one, may encourage the publisher and the journal to work together on a retraction because, you know, we're not going to police it, but based on what we're seeing, it mm -hmm. sounds like this is the, the course they should pursue. In the end, they'll be free to do what they they what they choose. Um, you know, we, we have annual meetings, we have a lot of meetings, but uh, we have an annual in-person meeting and the last couple of meetings have been consumed by at what point do we, we don't want to be, we're never going to be a policing agency, right? but at what point do we need to have a little more stick and not just carrot? So in other words, at what point do we either delist a journal mm. or tell a publisher we're going to delist all their journals as members if they don't get their act together? Um, we're starting to have those conversations. I don't think we'll be tossing, but there, there needs, we, we, we're, in fact, we're having, I believe, uh, coming up, some exploration of whether we need to tighten up our membership standards a little bit and at what point does someone not get to the, renew their relationship with us? Mm -hmm. Because they'll put it on there as a, like a seal of, hey, we're a member of COPE, and that's sort of viewed as a seal of, hey, we stick right. to certain qualities. Like COPE has all sorts of guidelines on everything from retractions to plagiarism to recycling of text and mm -hmm. uh, authors. And so that's, it is often viewed as a standard, one of the standards in the field. There are some other groups too. There's the uh, Congress of Scientific Editors. Uh, there's there's a whole bunch of different right. organizations, but COPE is one that's pretty well recognized out there. Right. Um, I want to talk about the sort of the standards and the guidelines that COPE puts out, but specifically in plagiarism and text recycling. What are, I mean, explain to us what is the definition of plagiarism by COPE standards and text recycling, and what are some issues that you've faced in those two areas as journal editor? So you know, a standard definition has been, you know, for plagiarism has been some string of words, six, ten words that are copy verbatim. But, but the problem is that that definition doesn't stand up very well because there are certain things in scientific papers that you're going to see all the time. You know, mm -hmm. our study is not without limitations. That, that you know, see that all the time. And it's going to light up. Uh, if you did a some kind, you know, we use tools just like, um, so it's what's called authenticate at the publishing level. I forget the name of the student level of turn it in. Turn it in. So, mm -hmm. so it's a much glossier, higher end version yeah. <laughs> of turn it in. But, um, but if you see something like, you know, the zebra ordered a bag of potato chips and then went out for dinner, <laughs> that's a pretty unique phrase and you're wondering why. And so it will now take you. So I think part of the way I answer the question, what's plagiarism? It's in context. So the software is at the point where now where it will literally take you to where it came from. You know, you get uh, something that comes back after a paper has been run through, authenticate where it, it's like a, someone highlighted it with a marker and you literally takes you to the source articles. And then if you see something where you go, okay, these are like three, four sentences in a row right. that have clearly been cut and pasted with just a change of a word here or there, then it's clearly been lifted. And then at that point you have to get into, well, why was it lifted? Was it okay? Was it just methods? And they're kind of repeating that as it referenced. Is, or are they taking someone else's paper, not their own? Mm -hmm. Taking your own stuff is what used to be called self-plagiarism, and now the term's been used text recycling, and we can talk about where that's mm. good and not good. 
plagiarisms, the worst, where you're taking stuff from someone else's paper. Yes. And particularly adopting it as your own and not giving them any credit for it. Right. I mean, it's clear why plagiarism is you're kind of, you're stealing something that belongs to someone else, that someone else has created and you're, you're saying that it's your own. Text recycling is a little bit more interesting because it's what you've written in the past and you're kind of reusing that. Why? Tell us why that's an issue at all. Yeah, I mean, there are two issues in, in, in both of them. You know, there's, there's the text and then there's the ideas. Yeah. So the authors always own their ideas. You know, the intellectual right. content or intellectual property, the authors own that. So if you're sponging it or plagiarizing it from someone else, that's pretty not good. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty awful. You're actually taking credit for someone else's work and ideas. That's that's stealing someone's property. Text recycling and recycling of words or your own words. So there, there's an issue there, and that and it's the same thing with plagiarism. Once you know, whenever you write a scientific paper or a paper writing journal, you sign an authorship agreement with, that gives the ownership of that string of words, that paper, to the publisher. Mm -hmm. You still own the ideas and the content, but that exact replication of words is now owned by the publisher. So you're you can't like start giving that away. Someone else owns it. You you've given it away, and so that's where you know using someone else's is dangerous. But even using your own, you need to give attribution. And and there are ways. And you know, where we see where text recycling is, in my view, and, and I think most views we've talked about this within Cope. Yeah, you know, if you're recycling text, particularly in methods, which we see commonly, it's like a methods of a paper is kind of like the formula how you did it, what's the recipe. As long as you attribute it with referencing or saying things like, as we previously described, and or if you use quotes or you use uh, footnote, that's that's fine. Where it gets dangerous is in a discussion or introduction of a paper, which should be new and a novel. If you tell me, like I've seen, you know, one was someone who was a chair at a um, a large children's hospital, and there were four or five paragraphs in the discussion out of like six or seven that were replicated almost verbatim from a prior paper. Right. And my, my response was, why, why would I want to read it again? Yeah. It's already been published. And moreover, you don't own it like that anymore anyway. But people don't seem to understand that for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not, back to your original point, that's not helping the scientific record. You know, the scientific record, you get one shot. We don't want people just to re keep repeating the same data over and over. We don't want, you know, what's called salami science, where you just keep making the thinnest uh, slice of salami you can, keep you know, publishing 80, 83 papers from one set of you know, several hundred patients. That's not good. Mm -hmm. Are there any cases that you've come across in plagiarism or text recycling that were difficult, particularly difficult to handle? And tell us a little about how you handled yeah, them. The, the, the term that comes up always is, you know, it's just something that was an oversight or accidental. And right. those are hard to judge. So, you know, policy from COVID is to sort of certainly talk to the authors, communicate with them, and, and try to understand what happened. So, I, you know, two ones that come to mind in the last couple of years, one where, you know, someone had taken a paragraph from someone else's paper, and it was clear to our group of editors that it was intentional because all the footnotes from that intermediate paper where it had been lifted or cut and paste were changed. So someone had and had very methodically done it. So it wasn't all, oh, oops, I inadvertently cut and pasted. I meant to change the words later. No, I actually left the words they were and I changed all the footnotes. Right. So that that was clearly intent. And that one we we rejected and, and 
told the senior often that we couldn't move forward with it. Um, and that's good. We don't contact the institution because it's not been published yet. And this wasn't something flagrantly so bad ethical that they need to be banned from something or, or whatever. Another one where I started reading a method section and they filled in, it was like a fill in the blanks, like an old Mad Lib or something. I, was, I couldn't understand it. And so, and this one, it was, I looked the person up and they were like a brand new assistant professor. So I just, this one I actually emailed and, I, and said, do you have some time to talk? And I called him and he was very nice. And I said, hey, so like, what happened with the methods? And he, and his answer was, well, my, my senior mentor said I could just take one of his other papers in a totally different topic and just fill in the blanks. And so I, I told him like, no, you, you can't do that. And I said, you know, your paper in that section lit up like a scoreboard and went to that other paper and I found that. And I, I you know, I kind of suspected that, but I wasn't going to volunteer that. Right. And I said, I'm, you know, considering your lucky day, I said, if you will go ahead and completely rewrite that, I will take a second look because that was accidental. That was unintentional right. or he was misled. I, I don't, I don't fault him. And he was very honest and he redid it. And then the paper was ultimately went out for peer review. It got accepted and published. And I felt good about that, that there was actually a teaching moment there. And I, I don't think, I don't think the author's intent was malevolent in any way. Mm -hmm. I think that kind of trying to discern the difference between intentionality and accidental things, it's, it's a little bit difficult, obviously, to just figure it out. It's, it's extremely hard. It's contextual. I mean, one of the papers I mentioned before, we must have sat on it for four weeks coming to a decision right. about what to do. So it's very hard. And I think it's only going to get harder when we get into AI and ChatGPT. We're going to have a lot of hard decisions about, do we really think this is something's work or not? And until we can get better detection methods for that, we're kind of yeah. on, a, on, a short, on a short range right now. Yeah. I want to talk about ChatGPT and AI. Before we do that, though, I had one other quick question about really more kind of like difficult ethical issues where you have an obligation to report research to the broader community. Tell us about in what cases do you decide to just reject a piece and say, hey, this is, you know, there's issues in plagiarism with this piece, you know, go fix it. Or the other case where, you know, there's really, really serious ethical issue and I have an obligation to report it to other journals. Yeah, so plagiarism and particularly text recycling, um, out of 3,000 papers, you can do the math, I probably will send back, reject outright for text recycling or plagiarism at least one, two a week, sometimes three or four in a week. So that's kind of scary. Um, some of them come from other countries, some from people we know in the US. Uh, so they're from all over. And then ethical issues, you know, where we really worry that the ones we worry about particularly are either leveraging disadvantaged populations mm -hmm. without their consent. So if there's lack of consent, lack of IRB, lack of clinical trial registration, then we feel people are being opportunized and, and that's not okay. If, we, if it's flagrant, I've had this in the last year that I've been editor, that if it were flagrant, we would go ahead and contact the institution if we thought there was some sort of human subject or human rights violation, we would certainly contact them. I think the other part where I've become really increasingly hyper alert is what's now called helicopter research. There's a lot of global health work that is really well intentioned, but there are instances where people, you know, uh, pick five people from whatever, pick a state, California, Michigan, and they fly to some country and they want to do research on something, but they don't involve 
the local inhabitants as investigators and partners, and then they fly back out, they helicopter out and publish their data. That's really taking advantage too. And that's something that uh, I think the community is going to see probably more as we do global health. And that's another one that I would probably, de depending on the, ex the how extreme would be inclined to contact in the institution, mm -hmm. if it looked like they were really exploiting a population. Right, taking advantage of yeah, human ex subjects. Ex exploiting other people is, is just, it's not tolerable. Right, right. You know, when it comes to human subjects, especially, it's it becomes a bigger issue rather than just the piece itself it kind of bleeds into society and the public when human subjects are being taken advantage of. I mean, human, human I mean, I, I think, you know, you asked before, I think something else that was formed of along the way. So I did my time, I don't know, three, four years on IRB7, uh, the institution <laughs> that we were here at Stanford, which was great. Uh, it's a lot of work. I was able to get I'm out sure. of it finally because I became director of Humbio and had an alibi why I had to leave IRB. It it's a, it's a, but I think everyone should go through an experience like that because it taught you me a lot about protecting human subjects, right. human subjects' rights, and when also doing research is futile. I mean, yeah. if, if you're going to put human subjects in something and you're never going to get the study finished, then it's just exposing people to risk with no benefit to society or them, right. then it's a waste of time and money and it's a violation of those people. Mm -hmm. You know, earlier you mentioned kind of, you know, I want to kind of move to specific cases. You mentioned there were a couple cases from the Journal of Pediatrics. Obviously, at Stanford, you're aware of the whole MTL scandal that happened where, you know, there are issues of him, his group, his research group falsifying images in, in his publications. I was wondering kind of, there's a lot of discourse about the difference between assigning blame to the culture that maybe he created in his lab um, to kind of let postdocs or researchers feel like it's okay to do things like that versus his own integrity as a researcher. And yeah, talk a little bit about the difference that you see in that. Right, so uh, yeah, I've never been in, in Marteski Levine's lab. Um, things I can say are, you know, I think close to fact, uh, certainly regarded as a wonderful neuroscientist, bright neuroscientist who's done some groundbreaking work. So I think that's part of it. So I don't think there's, I don't think there's an intentionality there. I think the problem is a culture, and I can't speak specifically how much is the culture from him in his lab. I, I can't speak to that. I just don't know. I mean, if I knew him, but I think it's part of a broader culture issue. Yeah. That you have the problem for someone who's a PhD in a lab. I've seen it in a department I've chaired in in the medical school. You know, every PhD is they're 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 doing their postdoc. They're not making a lot of money. They're making crappy five digit salary and it's really lousy. And as they're doing that, they're, remember there's this incredible pressure to get that one mm -hmm. seminal paper in science, cell, nature, you, you know, something like that out there. And when they, that creates a bad culture in science. Right. So we're, we're rewarding people. I think the other part of it too, in the, in the pressure in labs, there's this pressure to publish almost excessively or constantly yeah. and fun constantly. So with this hyper proliferation of science and funding and publishing, it creates this atmosphere of incredible pressure. And I think it's making it harder for principal investigators, whether it's MTL or anyone else, 
even if they're there 24 seven, can they really regulate everything their folks are doing because they're under incredible pressure? Right. I mean, the tools are getting better to detect plagiarism, any kind of manipulation of images. So that's gonna get better, but it's still harder. I mean, now you were getting to a point too where many research groups are running their papers and their images through detection software before they submit to a journal so they don't have to come up with some ugly finding when it, when it goes in. Yeah, maybe it comes to that, but I, but I think that that's a Band-Aid, right, mm -hmm. on a culture that's broken. The culture has to be fixed. If, if, if people are, if we're doing that to check on each other in a, in a lab group, then there's something wrong in the culture. So I, I don't, you know, again, I don't know a bunch of reported details like other people, uh, but when it comes to the, the case with MTL, I think it's part of a broader landscape. Mm -hmm. And the, the hard part uh, for a PI, and particularly high-profile PIs, is, you know, one, as a PI, when you submit a paper, and you sign as the senior author, you are responsible. Right. That's the problem. You do have to take responsibility. And that's maybe we can talk about, you know, where, where some problems arose there. Um, but then I think on top of that, you, you just need to be very, I think we need to take the pressure off. And, you know, just because someone got a paper in science doesn't mean they're necessarily the qualified person to run a lab and, Yale or Harvard or Wash U or U of Illinois or wherever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a sense of, you know, you've mentioned this about the community moving a little bit too fast and kind of, you know, veering into the whole quantity over quality metric. And I think that that's an interesting issue. And I think that there's a lot of layers when it comes to ethics. There's, you know, the, the reasons why misconduct happens, either like lack of education, um, just the culture itself, prioritizing novelty over truth in some situations. I'm also curious about the ways that different roles bleed into each other, because MTL was obviously an administrator at the university and also a researcher. You talked a little bit, we you know we were talking earlier about the way that politics and scientific publications bleed into each other. Do you see that happen often? Obviously during the pandemic, there was a huge overlap of pol like politics and science. How did that influence integrity. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, the one that came out was a very public case. Some of the, the Lancet, some of the editors, Richard Wharton, who's a wonderful editor. Um, but, you know, there were the, the study that was done with Sphere data, where it was initially, there was an expression of concern and then retraction. And without getting too far into the weeds about the case, but the, the bottom line was there was this rush, rush, rush to get the paper out there. And what the editor editorial team did was rather than choose the most expert reviewers, they went with the reviewers that were less expert and more readily available to get things done. There's not a lot of reward for your peer review. It's not compensated. You don't get promoted for it. You don't get much of anything for it, which is something that probably needs to be fixed. But with that, then, you know, they, they had to retract the paper. And so the rush to get things out there, there had been a big push in publications five, 10 years ago about, hey, submit to our journal because it has a shorter turnaround time. Mm, mm -hmm. I think that's starting to go away as all papers become, all journals become online. I can say with our own journal, I intentionally, you know, previously we would have metrics on all the associators, how quick is your getting papers assigned? Getting, I don't, uh, I really downplay that. 
you know, if I saw a paper that was languishing for months, sure, then, you know, and I, I checked the general flow of traffic. Why has this car been sitting on the side of the road for the last five months? But, <laughs> but I don't think rushing things is, is all that helpful. I mean, I think there's, there's probably too many papers. Yes. Probably publishers want, I mean, there's pros and cons. And then on that, there's too much of a rush. So it needs to be more thoughtful. I mean, you get back to what is the point of publishing again? It's a reporting of the scientific record. Mm -hmm. It's that it shouldn't just be publishing for the sake of it. And I need 33 papers to get promoted. That's where things like paper mills and all these other things come up. The sense that the publication shouldn't be sort of a bulletin board for people to be putting stuff on it. It's more of like a, it should be more curated than that. Is that... It's 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 you know just for people that particularly in medicine you know there's a medical record it's it charts you know people have done it's a digression but in the, the there's two criticisms of the medical electronic medical record one is just cut and paste cut and paste cut and paste and then the notes become excessively long but the medical record is just really meant to be a reporting of what happened so like mm-hmm. I feel like it is they like okay when the nurse went to was seen yesterday like. What happened and what are we going to do next? Mm-hmm. Just, it's not a journalism contest. And likewise, the scientific record should be a reporting of what happened with some discussion about it. Right. But we don't want it to be cut and paste, cut and paste, and hyperproliferation of 80,000. We do need some replication science, but we don't need 80,000 people working on the same project. Right. I mean, COVID is an example where during the COVID pandemic, we got and the journal pediatric got flooded with articles mm-hmm. about this patient with COVID and swallowed a nickel or this patient <laughs> with COVID and broke their leg. And I, I'm not sure they're related. In fact, I'm pretty sure they're not related. And why wouldn't we want to report them? And it, you know, we track what we did is we assembled a smaller group of folks from the editorial board to track these so that if there were ones that were timely to the pandemic, we would get them out there. But it turned out, I mean, there were very few of those, and most of them, our rejection rate of those papers was higher than our usual rejection rate, which was already selective. And that's just because much of them were just me too and just trying to get yes. things out there. I guess what you said, I like the word you used, a bulletin board. Like, it, we're not a bulletin board. Yeah. Uh, I guess you could post it on Google or anywhere else. You could put it on a right. podcast, a website, wherever you want to put it. Yeah. Instagram. I, just, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that you say that I mean, I agree that the whole scientific publication should be a scientific record, but doesn't that get into people who argue that, oh, like, you know, as a scientific publication, you want to publish novel research and interesting research, but things that are not novel are also part of the scientific record. How do you I think there's two that? things. So, so um, there's lots of different journals. So there are some of the premier journals in clinical medicine. There's Lancet. There's New England Journal of Medicine. There's JAMA and then Basic Science. There's science, there's cell, there's nature, and a few others. So um, those are journals that, you know, authors often would give their arm and leg to be in, but there may be instances where similar science could still be published in that same Mm. uh, journal or also in a high quality journal. So just because something is reinforcing or I think there is something, uh, maybe we don't need the third report of it, Right. But if it's a second, third thing, there's always been this worried about worry about being scooped and things like that. <laughs> I think there are ways around that. That's where I think things like commentaries, editorials, looking at data together are really helpful, and those should be encouraged. Moreover, sometimes journals will try, and, and we we can do a better job on this um, hyperlinking 
article so that when someone is going into a journal, they see, oh, hey, here's three other articles on the same topic. So I can look at this collectively. I think where we don't do a good job, where we could do better is uh, hyperlinking even across journals. Mm -hmm. That would be, that's, you know, PubMed does that to some extent, but not in a great way. And right. so there is some way that, you know, we could say, look, um, here are things. I mean, there are some journals um, that have news portions of it and they'll report some things that were in other journals and those kinds of things I applaud because it, it shows that, hey, you know, our journal, we're not the end all of everything. Right. Uh, there's other things out there. Yeah, the idea that scientific publications independently might not be, like each, like one single publication is not responsible for setting the entire like record of sci yeah, science. Yeah, but our not responsible for the entire yes, field of PDR. But, but the we might have a big role, but we're nothing. But we're not. We don't set the whole field. No. Yeah, and so not. collectively, as a as a community, and so yeah, not each. It's not in a vacuum, in any sense. So, I think kind of just to wrap up a little bit. I mean, looking forward. Thing like technologies that are emerging. You, met, you mentioned earlier generative AI and chat GPT are obviously changing the way that scientific writing is viewed. What are your thoughts on, you know, the validity of those tools as, you know, as agents for good or agents for the downfall of scientific original writing? So I think, I think they're tools um, in as much as people feared calculators and computers I think they're tools that can be used for great benefit. I think something science, science has been in many ways, a little bit Western bias for too long. And so we do want to make sure that, you know, science is global because mm -hmm. there are a lot of problems facing the globe. So if it can be free of politics, we do want to see global science. And then I think part of it, it does enable particularly authors whose first language is not English to seek getting published in, in, a, in a great journal that's primarily in English for good or bad. And I think that's helpful. I think where it becomes worrisome is that people start putting in things, particularly when it comes to introductions and discussions that really are chat GPT, chat GPTs or whatever <laughs> AI device generative, you know, it's really trolling what's out on the web rather than really what's in their right. paper. So I, I think, I think that's where it could be dangerous. You know, there's no doubt detection methods for it will come up right now. You know, we're still kind of stuck just sort of looking at it. Like, do we think it, you know, walks and talks like a dog? Yeah. I think <laughs> where we're, we're, you know, that, that we haven't gotten to the point where we can detect it well, but we, we, well, we do, we do make it clear that community has made it clear chat GPT cannot and should not be an author. It can be used as a tool on the paper, but authors, you know, authors have to basically conceive the idea, uh, write the paper, analyze the data, and then take responsibility. And that's mm -hmm. something ChatGPT, you know, cannot take responsibility for its actions. It, it's a tool. A calculator can't take responsibility. A computer, you know, people used to say in the 80s and 90s, computers are only as good as the data you enter. It's the same thing here. Uh, ChatGPT is helpful but it, you have to ask the right questions and, and phrase it right. I do think people should continue to get educated and learn to use it responsibly as a great tool. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what are your, I think the talking to people who have different views about the involvement of ChatGPT in, in scientific writing, what do you think about the skill that's required to use technology and like the access that 
different researchers will have to that across the world? I think it goes back to where we started at the beginning. I think it's understanding the methodology of research yeah. and understanding the ethics. I mean, as you were just saying, like, it would be great if an author said, hey, I'm writing a paper about this. What are some of the things you would consider as strengths and limitations of my study? And I asked Chad GBT, yeah. so I can address that before the reviewer beats it, beats it out of me. That's fine. That's great. Right. Uh, that's that's a great use of that tool. Mm -hmm. uh, like, hey, I want well, I didn't think about that. That's an answer to address in my discussion. Right. Great idea. Or I'm having some struggling with writing my introduction. How might you introduce this topic? Yeah. You know, there are constructive ways that it can be be used. Particularly, you know, I, I I feel really strongly, particularly in pediatrics, that we need to serve the whole community of children uh, from an academic point of view, and that's children worldwide. And so I do want to see this encouragement of, of papers from other, part, other parts of the world. Half the papers right. we receive are from outside the U.S. and more than half. And I want to continue to see that, but I'd like to see them get better. Yeah. Right now, they're, some of them are not the quality that we would like. But if they could be brought to that quality, that just think how much richer the whole world would be and children's health would be. Right. I think it just goes to show that the scientific community is becoming more global and interconnected. And then I guess because of that, I'm sure that the like scientific journals need to make changes with the way that they review pieces to make it kind of obviously more culturally sensitive and incorporating a diversity of opinions in their peer Absolutely. I mean, we've tried even in, you know, a have been editing for a year and change, but uh, even looking at our editorial board, I, I constantly ask myself, do we reflect the community of children, mm -hmm. families that we see as academic pediatricians? So I'm, you know, bringing in some people that are either younger, um, different diversity in race and ethnicity or different countries and trying to say, do we really reflect the globality, if that's a word, mm -hmm. uh, for children's health? And, and, and that's, it's a work in progress. It's going to take some time, but. That's something that's really important. Yeah, well, Dr. Fisher, thank you so, so much for your time today to be on the show and for just giving us such wonderful insight on these really important issues in research ethics. I think it's individuals like you who are dedicated to upholding truth in science that really help swing the pendulum of the research community to a more trusting relationship with the public. So thank you again for your time. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of Diagnosing Below Us. We'll see you next time.